Good afternoon. I am Loreto Rojas. And I'm Cal Winslow. Uh, today, we continue our series in recognition of Hispanic Heritage Month. And this is the third of four programs in all, each uh, considering an important issue in the Latinx community and beyond. Listeners will uh, know that we started with an interview with the historian Avi Chomsky. We continued with an interview with Alvaro Huerta, who talked about immigrants and the challenges they face today. And our third program is a little different, and we're really excited about it. And we're very lucky, and listeners are very lucky, to uh, be able to hear reports from three physicians from the border. Yes, it's my pleasure to introduce Alison Estrada, bienvenida, Ana Ortiz, and Aisha Van Pratt Levin. These three physicians are residents at Scripps Mercy Family Medicine Program, which is located in Chula Vista, uh, south of San Diego. There they provide healthcare to both, both sides of the border. So we wanted to begin by asking if you could introduce yourselves, please. Tell us a little bit about your, who you are and the work you do. Hello, everyone. I'm Ana Ortiz. Um, I am currently a family medicine resident uh, at Scripps Chula Vista um, here at the, uh, one of the closest hospitals to the border. Um, I grew up in the Central Valley, Modesto, California, um, and left uh, to Boston for college. Um, have also worked in the Bay Area, so I've kind of got a taste for a little bit of uh, different places in California and also um, some immigrant work in Boston. Um, I'm uh, mostly passionate about um, immigrant health in general, um, women's health, particularly um, uh, pregnant women and obstetrics, um, and I'm very excited to be here today. Terrific. Aisha? Yeah, good morning, everyone. Um, thank you so much for having us on the show and inviting us for an interview. I'm Aisha Van Pratt Levin. I'm originally born here in Chula Vista, California, actually at the hospital where all three of us are currently residents. But I grew up in Tijuana across the border and uh, lived there with my parents um, through high school. I then moved to New Jersey for college and stayed and stuck around in the Northeast. Um, after college and doing some community health work and then back to New Jersey for medical school and full circle, here I am back at pretty much where it all started. And I'm very excited to be caring uh, for the population and the community that basically raised me. Bienvenida, Aisha. Gracias, gracias. <laughs> uh, uh, welcome, Alison. Hi, good morning. My name is Alison Estrada. I'm so grateful to be here with you all today. Um, thank you for this, this honor to come speak with you. I am also a family medicine resident at Scripps Chula Vista, um, and I'm from San Diego originally, um, trained, did my medical school in Los Angeles, uh, and a master's degree in, in Boston, actually, with Anna. <laughs> and we're back here doing um, the work that we do at, at the border. We're all very passionate about this work, and it's just such an honor to be you know, in a room with, with strong women physicians. It's just so great. So we're excited to chat with you today. We all know what a doctor is, and you're all doctors. Maybe you could kind of explain to us the process by which 
or the process that you're going through to get to whatever you want to be? So what it means to be a resident is basically that all three of us and whoever is a resident, we have gone through college years. We all majored in something, chose a career path, uh, regardless of what you study, could have been an engineer, you could have been a biologist, um, you could have done cultural anthropology, it really doesn't matter what career path you choose in college. You also do some prerequisite courses um, and then do medical school for four years. So regardless of what you studied in college, you can then do medical school for four years. And what it means to be a resident is that after medical school, you graduate as an MD or a DO, you're a physician, but you have to choose your specialty of choice, right? You want to do surgery or you want to do OBGYN or family medicine, like in our case. And so after medical school graduation, you go through an application process in which you pick not only your specialty of choice, but where you want to practice and, and where you want to train in those years. And so that's pretty much where we all are. And all of us chose the Scripps Family Medicine Program in Chula Vista. And we have been here now for about two and a half years or almost two and a half years. And family medicine typically is three years. And so we are physicians already, but we are being trained and we are working and learning towards becoming family physicians specifically. Just want to point out, we only have six more months left. So we're very excited about that. About maybe 10, 10 ish. <laughs> um, but uh, so yeah, family medicine. Um, so um, the, the big picture of family medicine is that we take care of everyone. Um, we take care of women in pregnancy and we take care of newborns. We take care of people throughout their lifetime. Uh, we say, um, uh, until death basically. Um, so we, um, that means that during residency, um, what we're learning is, uh, we, it, our training is typically divided, um, in months and we are spending a month uh, kind of focusing on each of the uh, each of the populations uh, in terms of whether it's age group or type of medicine. So sometimes we'll be doing pediatrics because we do take care of children. Um, sometimes we'll be doing um, obstetrics, which is both delivering babies in the hospital and also doing prenatal care. And we do the full gamut of women's health as well, including contraception, um, et cetera. Um, and then we um, also take care of the elderly. So we go to um, nursing homes as well um, and focus on what are the special needs of um, our older patients. And then we both work inside the hospital and, uh, and in the clinic. So we have some months where we're in the hospital taking care of really sick people um, who are staying in the hospital with us, whether it's that they had a stroke or um, they've had complications from long-term diabetes or they have kidney disease and are on dialysis. And then we also take care of everybody who I just mentioned, we can take care of in the clinic as well. So our typical clinic visits where people are coming in for a visit, um, we uh, do spend um, uh, a few days a week um, in clinic. And so we're seeing again, anywhere, anybody, anywhere from newborns to um, our oldest patients, and we do we do it all basically. Very well, yeah. And uh, um, as we were preparing for this the interview, uh, 
I noticed that uh, up to 80% of the residents in this program are from Latino origins. So the majority of the residents are bilingual? Yeah, I would say so. And I think that was something that all three of us, well, I I don't know, for me, it was very exciting to come to a place where so many people were bilingual and so many people were um, sharing a country or like a place of origin with me. That was a, a very new experience for me, having moved directly from Mexico all the way to New Jersey, kind of skipping through California for a bit. Um, I was, you know, one of five people maybe in, in my medical school class who were identifying as Latinx or it, it was just not that common. And maybe I was like the only you know, medical student for, for a while that could, you know, interpret for patients in the hospital and to come to a place where all of a sudden that was commonplace. I, I was, it was so exciting. It was very um, new, um, but very exciting for me, for sure. <laughs> so is, is this what it means when I see that uh, the program you're in is culturally sensitive? Is that the, is that something that the program's known for? Yeah, so I think I think a big part of why a lot of our residents are from Latinx background is because of our patient population. Um, so our patient population is predominantly um, Latinx, um, and it can be a diverse population given that we are at the border. And um, you know, people some of our patients are transient and trying to get to other places in the country. And so I think because of our patient population, the fact that we um, are very uh, aware and sensitive to um, the fact that we are at the border. A lot of our patients live by national lives. They don't necessarily live here or in uh, Tijuana. They, you know, there's there's an intersection um, where that um, where they live may be transient as well, and the types of things that they do on each side of the border uh, may be different. And so, um, I think that a lot of residents who do end up coming to our residency um, are excited about that or have had skills um, or have gained skills in the past um, that, uh, you know, are they're very excited to use. Like, um, you know, Allison mentioned she has a master's in public health and Aisha has done anthropology in the past. And so a lot of our residents are not only Latinx, but are very passionate about um, taking care of uh, Latinx immigrant populations. Um, and I think that's what kind of makes our program. I think part of what contributes to that too, um, and something that I've noticed throughout as we moved on from class to class and have gotten to meet the new people coming in is also that I, I see the shared story and I see that a lot of our residents themselves have similar stories, have lived that binational or that transient or that transnational life. And so I think that is part of what contributes and allows us to have that culture sensitivity is coming from a place of lived experience. A lot of us have had those lives. A lot of us are caring for people that could be our grandmother or our father or our aunt, um, our cousins. Um, and so I think that that is the, you know, the, the kind of magical thing that has allowed us to plant ourselves in this community and, and care and love it as our own, quite literally. And I also wanted to give a shout out to our, our Latinx faculty. I think that's also something that's very um 
uh, unique and special about our program is that we do have a lot of faculty who either were part of the re were residents themselves and that stayed on as faculty. Um, and I think for a lot of us, through, you know, Aisha mentioned the road to medicine is like four years of college, four years of medical school, residency, that um, at some point in our careers, um, given our background, maybe we've struggled with um, figuring out where we fit in or what does it look like to be, to have our background and, um, and be a physician. And I think that in our program, we have um, amazing examples through our faculty of the type of work that we could be doing and how to, um, how to really um, embrace the background that we have in terms of how we can best take care of our patients. This is an inter inter very interesting point that you present, Anna. Uh, so I would like to uh, know a little bit more. I mean, you have been in this program, as you were saying, for almost two and a half years. So not only is an exceptional program in terms of being bilingual and with Latino faculty and mostly Latino residents or... Um, but also you have endured COVID <laughs> pandemic, right? So uh, I'm going to uh, give the microphone to Alison. Perhaps she can tell us a little bit how, how the pandemic has also, I mean, I wanted to have kind of a report about how's the health in the border and how the COVID had affected uh, people's lives over there. Absolutely. I mean, all of us know whether you're in medicine or not, that COVID has just been absolutely traumatic and tragic for everyone in this country, everyone in the world, really, but especially for underrepresented communities like ours, where, you know, essential workers don't have the luxury of staying home or having the proper protective equipment. So we're, you know, our communities are really on the on the front lines in everyday work and have been hit the hardest from COVID. So um, we're seeing now that um, California is one of the only states in the country that's having a little bit of a decreased transmission from, you know, in comparison to everyone else, it doesn't mean we're in the clear at all. Um, but it does mean that, you know, slowly, slowly, we're, we're very, barely starting to recover. I would say that um, at the border, um, there have been a lot of issues with, um, uh, you know, in terms of how COVID um, transmission and how, you know, best intentions from, from the federal government and trying to prevent COVID transmission have actually prevented um, people's human right to seek refuge in this country. Um, and so we, you know, have a large um, uh, number of individuals at the border who are seeking their human right for asylum, but because of um, persistent um, rules from the past uh, administration are not able to come to the border and seek um, uh, refuge. So, you know, there's remnants that trickle all the way across every aspect of our lives. And what we do in the hospital is really just try our best to make sure that people understand that vaccination is the best way to prevent yourself from getting contagious, uh, sick with COVID. Um, and, uh, you know, in our communities, not everyone has access to vaccines. So we really try to promote and have equal access to our vaccines as much as we can in our federally qualified health center. Um, and we have a couple of individuals in our group have um, gone up to a different part of San Diego to do vaccine drives um, in the campo, like in, in places where people are, are working in fields so that they also have access to vaccines, but also really promoting the idea that vaccines are safe in our communities because there is a lot of misinformation um, and we, we want to promote that our, our communities can be healthy and safe and continue to live their, their best lives here. So I was wondering, how does the, how does policy toward the border and immigration impact 
your work and um, not to make too much out of it, but, uh, you know, we still have problems, don't we, as far as the border is, is concerned, even though Trump for the moment is gone? Yes, absolutely. Um, and policy is something that we focus on a lot, whether it be policy at our own hospital or policy locally or even um, nationally, something that we're very focused on because we know that policy makes the biggest difference of anything. So currently for one micro example is we continue to care for patients in our hospital who come from um, detention centers, border patrol, you know, ICE detention centers. Um, mostly those patients that we interface with are from, um, are on labor and delivery. So they're pregnant moms. Um, and, you know, we acutely know that no mom or no newborn baby should ever be in a um, inadequately, uh, uh, you know, if a facility without true care, without um, access to easy medical care, without clean running water, without safety. And so, um, you know, those policies, we see the, the, the effect of every single day um, that this, you know, these, these policies from previous administrations have absolutely carried over. Um, even from the Obama administration, this is not unique to Trump. Um, that we continue to witness here in our hospital and, and at our border. This is this is not a, a huge change, but we're hoping for more. We're hoping for more. With this administration, they've given us a little bit of a, a tidbit of, you know, maybe we can, through Congress, we can start moving things forward with um, pathways to citizenship and um, better access to healthcare in our state um, for, for undocumented immigrants. But um, we, we still have a lot of work to do. You're absolutely right. Do you find yourself having to fight for the rights of patients? Always, always, whether they be, you know, an immigrant patient or not, we, that's our job as family medicine um, doctors. We, we're known, every specialty has their, you know, their stereotype, and we're known as being the social justice warriors, because as wow. we care for people from cradle to grave, like Anna said, um, you know, there's a lot of advocacy that goes involved in that, whether that be access to reproductive rights, whether that be access to, um, you know, workplace safety, whether that be access to um, trying to get someone, you know, released from detention so that they can have um, the care that they need, whether it's even advocating for health access for someone to have, you know, who's a, an undocumented immigrant or is a legal permanent resident but hasn't been here for five years or hasn't been a legal permanent resident for five years yet, you know, they're completely barred from specialty care and, um, and procedural care. So if someone needs a surgery, for example, you know, it, it may not be covered and they'll have to pay thousands of dollars in cash that, you know, not many of us have thousands of dollars laying around to be able to just, you know, give so that they can have the care that everyone needs and deserves. So that's really our job. And that's why the three of us and, and all of us in the program really are working after hours, over hours, day and night, trying to really advocate for these patients. Um, and one thing I, I will say is, um, along with a couple of community members, I've started a, a nonprofit here in San Diego um, called Comunidad de Apoyo San Diego. Uh, and the purpose of that is really to um, bring together patients who are community members who have not been able to access healthcare in the past, um, provide support for them, whether it be emotional support and also provide financial support so that they can have, we can fundraise for them to get the procedures that they um, can't get because they can't get insurance, um, as well as educating other um, the physicians to say, hey, you know, this is a problem in our community. How can we continue to advocate for policy, um, and, you know, statewide, local-wide? Pretty, pretty exciting stuff. We're really excited to keep Yeah, social, social justice warriors. We'll have to remember that one for sure. 
Yeah, we yeah. we need some of you around this area for sure. <laughs> so, Aisha, um, could you tell us a little bit more about the work you do outside of the regular program? I imagine that you are involved in the, some services that are not strictly happening in the hospital, right? Absolutely. And I think not just um, not just the three of us, I think most of the people in our residency, faculty and residents included, which is, I think, part of goes along with what Allison said. I think every specialty has their own stereotype and persona. And, and in my mind, when I chose family medicine, I really chose it because I, I truly believed it was like the anthropologist within medicine, really our job and focus is not just to care for individuals, but to care for families and communities. And, and as family physicians, all of us are very acutely aware that most of the work and impact that we can have for our people and our patients' health is outside the walls of the community hospital or the community clinic, um, our clinic offices. Um, most of what we do is outside, not just with policy, but also at the individual level. And so some of the things that we focus on is very much targeting policy within and outside, um, targeting, raising awareness, um, targeting, you know, encouraging our community members to really play a more active role in that policy making to help people become aware that we do have a say, we do have an impact, and we do have a choice in terms of driving the, the policies and the politics that in at the end of the day, like impact our life. And some of the programs that we all participate in um, also are across the border, um, not just within San Diego, but as a residency, we try to go across the border um, to some of the clinics that we do um, in Tijuana, uh, a little bit further south, and we go down to San Quintin, where it's also a mostly a rural community with a lot of um, work in fields and workers that we see in the community centers or health clinics there. Um, and we also try to do visits in the asylum um, shelters here in San Diego. And those are a little bit of a hybrid between volunteer work for us, but also work that our residency has absolutely considered key and important and has been very flexible and encouraging for us as residents and physicians and faculty to get involved with. And so even though it's not strictly part of our job description, our program has made it a point to work with us so that we're able to be active participants and, and, and do it in a longitudinal way, which I think is very important. You know, it's not the same when you get to go on a global health trip for a couple of weeks and then that's it, you leave and there's not much of a relationship that goes both ways or a longitudinal relationship that you can build on. But I do believe that all three of these um, and, and beyond any project that we tend to get involved with, we very much try to make it a long-term relationship and a two-way relationship, um, not just us going somewhere, providing direct care for a couple of weeks and leaving, but to make it an ongoing relationship as time goes by. This is fascinating. It's really fascinating and fantastic. Now, 
my naivete, you, you're allowed to go back and forth across the border and work in both sides? The, the authorities uh, permit that? Yeah, hi, this is Aisha again, I'm answering that question. Um, we are, uh, the way it usually works is that we don't have a license to practice across the border, right? We're physicians and, and licensed providers here in the US, but by developing relationships with physicians, with other clinicians that are across the border, um, in the case of where we go in Tijuana and San Quintin, we're able to practice under their license. And so that's what I think is so crucial and important about developing these two, you know, transnational relationships is that the same health problems or health questions or health concerns that exist on one side of the border inevitably exist in the other. We're a fluid community, no matter how you might see portrayed, you know, on TV, on movies, on social media, that there's a very clear divide. There is not. And I truly believe having grown up in the area, caring for the community now that we truly are one in, in our daily lives and in, in the health concerns that impact both sides. And I think 100% both Anna and Allison and everyone in our program see it and agree. And so really what allows us to do that is, is that relationship and that working in teams um, and going and practicing perhaps under you know faculty or attendings who are licensed on that side of the border in, in Mexico and vice versa. If there were providers to come on, on our side of the border in San Diego and Chula Vista, they'd be able to practice under the license of our faculty, just like we are. Thank you so much about that. And for our audience, I want to uh, tell you, if you just join us listening today, this afternoon, uh, we are here with Alison Strada, Ana Ortiz, and Aisha Van Pratt. Levine, uh, she was the last one that just spoke. Uh, they are three residents uh, at Scripps Mercy Family Medicine Program uh, located in Chula Vista, which is south of San Diego. I mean, it's, it's really a part of the big San Diego area, but it's a neighborhood and they provide services, health care on both sides of the border. So I wanted to ask you about medicine itself or illness, which is, you know, so interesting. Now, what are the uh, causes of illness that you identify in this area where as many times I mentioned, it's like a, there is a imaginary line that which is highly enforced, but where the frontier crosses us. It's like a, we live in this fluid situation that you are describing in the border and in many other, place, other places. And uh, so I wanted to ask you, what are the causes? How, what do you identify as factors that create illness in this area? I know it's a big one, so. <laughs> I can take a first stab at it maybe. <laughs> Thank you, Alison. Um, but uh, so essentially, like as, as Aisha said, we are one community and we, you know, it is a very fluid space, but it also is a very liminal space. And so when we have, you know, even if you watch people as they cross the border from, from Mexico to, for, to San Diego, you can really see, you know, the change in people. It's just, it's a different environment altogether. And as people, as people move back and forth, um, there are incredible amounts of health risks that happen. One is we see in our communities here, not everyone has the privilege of crossing, right? So people, many people who are in San Diego cannot cross to, to Tijuana. Um, and 
there, the opportunities that exist for those people who may not have, like we said, health insurance, may not make standard living of wage. Really, it's about the structural determinants of health for us that we see here. So people who are living in poverty or near the poverty line, you know, access to, that impacts everything, right? Not just access to healthcare, but um, the safety that they get at their job, are they exposed to chemicals? You know, I have many patients who work night shifts at um, uh, factories and have, you know, chronic back pain because they've been leaning forward like this for years and years, or people who have workplace accidents because they're working two, sometimes two and a half jobs to support their families. Um, other things are, you know, access to healthy foods. We know that healthier foods are way more expensive than, than eat easy, cheap foods that are, you know, it, when you're on the go and are, you know, high, high cortisol, high stress, because you're trying to make ends meet is just, you know, that puts you at risk for all kinds of things, whether that be heart disease, diabetes, cancer. Um, and those we see on both sides of the border, right? We see that everywhere in our particular border um, space here. We know that um, because of the high traffic area, we um, have higher rates of um, tuberculosis and some sexually transmitted diseases like HIV, which tend to go along really well together, tuberculosis and HIV. We don't care for a ton of patients in that population, but we know public health speaking, that is, that is one of our unique um, challenges here. But I think the other thing that we don't think about kind of the silent um, disease of our, of our generation is depression and anxiety, PTSD and chronic stress. And something that's very, not very well recognized and not very well accepted by many, at least of my patients. I know I struggle to kind of even explain what this is and explain how to get treatment because um, the stress of living in this day of age is, is incredible, is incredible. And we have generational trauma that we're working with patients to to heal and recognize. So the list goes on and on, but those are just a few that I can think of that are really, you know, that I, at least in my clinic, I care for um, quite a bit. So Anna or Dr. Ortiz, did, uh, you uh, grew up in central California. Is that, yeah. have I got that right? Central so Valley, would, yes. would you say that these kind of conditions are uh, more general in California than just on the border from your own experience? Um, are, are they things that are far away from us up here in, you know, rural Mendocino County, or are they uh, things which uh, probably are found other places as well? Yeah, I would say there's definitely a lot of parallels in terms of um, the immigrant experience, but also um, a lot of the things that we talk about in terms of health um, that are environmental, I think are um, very common in um, underrepresented communi uh, communities in general. Um, in particular, I think about, um, you know, one unique that I would say is unique to the border um, that we think about is this uh, coming and going of traffic and that congestion of traffic that happens at the border also creates a lot of pollution for a population in um, San Isidro. Um, and as unique as that particular situation may be, I think we see that a lot um, in different populations. Like I know growing up in the Central Valley, we were very much aware of uh, higher um, asthma rates among children. Um, and that even though like the exposure is different, um, like for the Central Valley, it's a lot of the factories um, that are in the area and uh, different sources of pollution. While the source of pollution is different, I think that it is um, a common thread among underrepresented or lower income communities that 
um, we, you know, there, there just tends to be um, some type of exposure um, that affects the health environmentally. I would say similarly in terms of mental health, I think that is something that um, uh, I've seen as a thread, both in Boston, both even being like in Northern California in some areas in Fallbrook. Um, there are some rural um, immigrant communities in Fallbrook and um, Northern San Diego, um, where um, some of the farm working populations there are not really able to um, leave that community very easily because there are multiple immigration checkpoints that surround them. Um, and I think that those themes um, are persistent regardless of where you are, um, it, depending, on, depending on immigration status, that there are those kind of limitations. I know growing, growing up in the Central Valley, there was a very, um, uh, um, there's a lot of camaraderie around trying, like figuring out like was immigrant, was ICE going to be in a certain area in the community? And I think that those stressors and not being able, for example, to visit family across the border, whether you're in the Central Valley or further up north in California or right next to the border where you can see it and you can't cross, I think that those um, like, you know, stressors and mental health themes persist. And I can go on and on. There's just so many examples of, um, you know, um, just effects on um, communities that come with um, being an immigrant and just not, not even just an immigrant, but just um, being in communities that don't have um, as many resources as others. Are these checkpoints, they're internal to the U.S. Do you have to show some documentation or something at, at a checkpoint or how do they work? Yeah, so the checkpoint that I was um, speaking about in particular is the checkpoint in San Clemente. Um, and then there's a few um, in Southern California um, and they typically, you know, they're not always open. Um, so sometimes they may be closed for some period of time, um, but it, it can be unpredictable when they're going to be open or not. And they do, um, it's, um, it's pretty much up to the discretion of who's running the checkpoint. I don't, I, I won't claim to know too much about them. I know about them more from as a community member, not from really knowing how they work. Um, but um, most of the time they're just letting people pass and just like watching to see who's there. Um, I think occasionally they uh, would stop people is the impression that I get that's the purpose that they serve. And then I think that they, they do some surveillance with like uh, a lot of surveillance with trucks that are coming by um, as well. But I don't know much more than that. So, um... We were uh, talking about earlier about the, the need to have certain policies change to address some of the health issues that we encounter, that you are encountering over there and that we also see here with the, sometimes not everybody has access to the to health and, and specialties particularly. Uh, of course, you know, you all know that well. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about how we can create some uh, community-based uh, programs that will help people to... Is, is there real power on organizing or educating communities in order to take charge of their health when they are actually in a context that is so adverse to their health as when you are mentioning with traffic and pollution and working in the uh, uh, maquilas or maquiladoras or, or industries 
that are highly polluted. So, so how how to find that balance between educating the community and also fighting the course the the conditions that are present? I can speak a little bit to that. Um, Great, Mrs. Allison. Um, you know, I along with the these community members that I'm working with in this organization, um, I have been absolutely just floored and full of joy to see the the how um, someone who is empowered and has you know is able to take a be able to look for resources and receive resources how that can actually actually be transformational to their life and I'll give you one example um, I have a patient of mine who we were able to raise money for a, a procedure for her she's she's quite young um, and doesn't have, um, is unable to get um, health insurance because of her immigration status. And when I met her, she was closed, afraid, the kind of, um, you know, feeling that Anna was telling you about, a very aware, hyper aware of, you know, I, I really can't move outside of this block of my city. I, you know, just feeling very closed and, and feeling like she had been told from many doctors that she needed this procedure and she would just kind of leave and say, yeah, I, I know I need it. And, and the doctor wouldn't know that she couldn't get it because she wasn't, um, they didn't understand that if, you know, in her certain condition, in her certain situation, she wasn't able to apply for um uh, uh, health insurance. And that's actually pretty common. Doctors will say, oh, go apply for health insurance. And they don't actually understand that not everyone can um, based on immigration status. So anyway, um, we were able to raise just a small amount of money for her, was able to get her procedure. But in meeting with my other patients, we've had success for in getting um, you know, their procedures covered for as well. We have this one individual and um, uh, I'll say his name here, Ramon. He is just such one of those people that's just infectious with his energy and just so even though he's faced incredible challenges himself I think because he's faced incredible challenges himself he just exudes this energy of you know anything is possible and and in meeting with her this this other patient of mine um he really just said you know you're young your whole life's ahead of you what are you waiting for I you know he he really just kind of encouraged her in different aspects of her life and they spent a couple hours together and um you know, it was, it was incredibly transformational just to sit and watch and hear that. But what's even more incredible was that she turned around and, and changed her entire life. She applied for a, a different job that was actually in a career that she wanted to. She moved out of the house with her parents and got her own place. She applied for a community grant that existed in San Diego that, you know, otherwise she may not have looked for. She got married. Oh my goodness. So now she, you know, just really, truly changed her entire life. And I don't take credit for any of it. I think it's the power of community that, you know, together and saying, you know, yes, we face these incredible challenges, but in addition, we cannot place additional challenges on ourselves because we fear that we aren't enough or we can't move forward or there's not opportunity for us. While we do that, then we can be our enlightened, our best selves to then say, hey, we, you know, what is the phrase? They tried to plant us, but they didn't know we were seeds. This woman was an incredible seed. She was planted and she just grew. And a lot of our community members are like that. We, we shut ourselves down because we feel like being who we truly are, sharing who we truly are, asking for what we actually deserve is going to get us in trouble or is going to be too much. But everyone deserves the right to live a happy, healthy life. That's what we believe. And so just doing that for one another is something that we can all, all provide. And it's, you know, truly the power of community is, is, is absolutely beyond. You're right, Lorenzo, you're right. We should uh, pause for just a few moments here. Um, this is talking about California and we're um, uh, recognizing Hispanic Heritage uh, Month and we're uh, Loretta Rojas.
and Cal Winslow, that's me. And uh, we are uh, extraordinarily lucky to have not one, but three fantastic guests. Um, uh, Dr. I'll say, I'll say these wrong, but Dr. Anna Ortiz, Dr. Aisha Levin, and Dr. Allison Estrada, is that close? And uh, typically uh, very uh, modest, uh, but highly uh, qualified and motivated uh, young people from my point of view, young people anyway. And um, in general, I would say about our program and looking at the um, border, we have uh, found extraordinary people in the UCs, young scholars in the UCs, young scholars in the state university, activists. Uh, and it certainly has made, it's, it's always been a great boost to my morale at a time when things are kind of difficult and there's a lot of pessimism about. So I, I wanted to call attention to that before we run out of time. I have a question from the, uh, another generation. I was uh, fascinating to see that you uh, uh, talk about free clinics. And you know, we had free clinics back in the day, started off in the youth movement uh, to take care of the street kids. And the Black Panther Party had free clinics. And uh, is there a connection between your free clinics today and those of the olden days? I love that you brought that up. Um, I, this is Allison. I think, you know, absolutely, you know, the generations of history that we've built on, this is not just us starting something new. We are only a product of our, of our forefathers and foremothers. And um, absolutely, absolutely. While they may appear differently, their, you know, energy is still continues and the models still continue. Well, tell us about free clinics, because I think maybe people don't know about them. Aisha, I saw that you wanted to say something, so go ahead. Oh, <laughs> yeah, um, I think, so what I was going to comment is that I think it does very much at least have that shared historical drive and historical ideals that continue to be shared, you know, from one generation to another of, of the true belief that that health and, and living to our fullest potential is a right that we all share as human beings, regardless of our background, regardless of our, our you know, where we come or what we're doing. That's just something that should be and that we aspire to and that we strive to work towards. Um, so free clinics really, it kind of depends. Um, I think, it, you know, in, in our medical school, each of us were able to participate in free clinics that were very much started and built by medical students, at least. Um, and that is something that you do see all over the country. That's not just here in the border, not just here in California. I myself were, was very active in the free clinic that we had in New Brunswick, New Jersey, you know? Um, and there was a whole board and, and, and community built around those. Now, moving on to like stepping up in the doctor ladder, uh, where we work, what are called federally qualified health centers, um, really the philosophy behind those is that they are health centers and clinics and community clinics. Um, you know, there's different names for them, but really that they provide care to anyone, anyone who comes in, regardless of their ability to have health insurance or not. Ideally, that is what we strive for. 
we know that, you know, ideals are one thing and the reality of life is another. And so a lot of times that free care that we try to provide or that we're striving for is not always free. And I think all three of us have seen that that ideal isn't always very well um, executed because of different challenges and barriers, but um, we do try to provide care for anyone, um, regardless of whether they have an insurance that will pay for it or not. And if they don't have insurance, they are what are called self-pay patients. And we hope and try to create a sliding scale for them uh, for payment, meaning that, you know, based on their income, they will be charged a certain amount of money. Um, typically, uh, they aren't made to pay before having gotten the service, but if, you know they will be billed at some point or maybe later on. So it doesn't always work out as we would want in terms of being able to provide that truly free care, um, because also the cost doesn't necessarily just come in in paying for the appointment or the labs or the studies that we might order, but we all know and understand that the cost also comes in terms of transportation, in terms of having to leave work for that appointment, in terms of having to take time off from work for recovery of whatever illness is going on, childcare, um, and many other costs that are invisible, you know, a lot of times in, in the statistics that are shared. Well, my wife's a family nurse practitioner here in Fort Bragg, and she's involved in starting a street medicine um, program. And um, I wondered if uh, you have uh, attitudes toward the homeless. Uh, and I know... Uh, Loretto has been very concerned about the issue of, of housing uh, and hasn't brought it up yet. So I'll, I'll just bring it up. Uh, but is, is, is that something, I mean, we, we hear that the housing situation is quite bad in Southern California. Yeah, definitely. So I'm glad that you bring that up. I recently just had um, a kickoff event actually um, here in Chula Vista that was a very inspiring event. Um, all with um, a lot of community organizations and community leaders that are all doing a lot of the street medicine work. Um, we are um, Dr. Duhan actually, who um, connected us uh, with um, Loreto, um, uh, is the one spearheading um, the street medicine here um, at our residency program. So the goal is to um, provide training to our residents um, to provide the type of um, medicine that is needed. Um, and then the idea is to be out, um, out in the community um, and outreaching to the homeless population um, or houseless population um, to provide a lot of the care that they need. Um, it's just starting off. I just this last week got an email from Dr. Duan about um, meeting and um, trying to get the um, the program running, um, but yeah, that is, it's something that we're very excited about. Um, and this reminds me, um, uh, if for anyone who's interested in uh, um, looking at a lot of the work that our program is doing, we post a lot of new things that we're doing or, um, on our Instagram. Um, so people should feel free to look us up on Instagram. Um, I don't have the handle at the top of my head right now, but um, uh, we can definitely um, share it with you all so that 
um, the, you can continue to follow maybe some of the things that are, that are, that are, that are coming within our program, like street medicine. It is something that is newer for us. Yeah. Right. And, uh, also, uh, here in our County, um, one particular program that this has been, uh, uh, that came out of the pandemic is the Promotores de Salud. So it's a, it's, it has been called a pilot program, but they are in full blown energy working in the community of Willits and the surrounding areas in the inland uh, part of Mendocino County. So I think those, those are the um, opportunities that will bring the community together to, to learn more about the things you were describing, Alison, now this outreach that you develop. Yeah, our, um, so uh, in this same uh, line of thought, um, we are interested also in the issue naturally of uh, how we um, make these services available for our community. I mean, we are not so lucky to have a, a medical school in Mendocino County where people could go and get this free medicine. Any ideas of how a rural area with uh, so many geographic challenges, not only the, the migration and the mental issues and the stress of the pandemic and all the things that have been mentioned, but also uh, a community so diverse and so disconnected geographically can actually address these uh, issues of bettering our health. I think you do present a lot of, you know, there are a lot of challenges. I think on the flip side of that, this is Allison, sorry. Um, on, on the flip side of that, there are, there is a lot of strength and a lot of um, opportunity in that. And so one model that has been used in the past is absolutely the promotoras model um, in various places around the world for many, many years. Um, I know in China, they have the, the barefoot, um, barefoot doctors who would, you know, travel rurally to be able to deliver medical care to different communities um, has been used in, in Haiti and other places as well. But essentially with the idea of the promotores is the, that members of their own community are trained to provide um, medical care, which is not unlike you know, what, what many people at Scripture Livest are doing. Members of our own community are getting trained um, to then be able to deliver care. But essentially um, those individuals then travel to different, to different locations to be able to provide care. Um, and it's, it's really, you know, a community taking care of itself. I think the other thing though, that is, you know, can't be understated is the need for more providers to, um, come from diverse backgrounds through, um, you know, medical education and training, but also then to practice in, in rural areas. There's a very high density of, of physicians in, in wealthy areas, like, you know, places in Los Angeles, certain places in Los Angeles, but in other places, you know, um, we really, there's a paucity of, of doctors there that have chosen to practice in rural areas. And, and that's on us, right? Once we train, we, we, um, we really need to start looking at where um, communities are, are in need or are interested in having more um, physician care. And that's something that um, our, our program tries to work on as well as having us train and, and be those doctors that can, if, I mean, if as family doctors, we can see anybody who walks through the door, right? So that's an ideal rural doctor, um, anyone who comes, we can say, we can, we can help you. That's um, kind of the goal is to be able to extend that care to rural communities. Um, we're running out of time, I, I see, but maybe we can just squeeze this in. We've, we've been so concerned over the past couple of years in reporting from the border. And I think like millions of people have been concerned 
about the images of children in cages and, and unaccompanied children? And, and uh, do we have any progress there? And, and do you uh, interact with these young youngsters? Um, sure, yeah. I mean, um, in terms of progress, I think um, a lot of us are probably hesitating because even if we see one thing change, right, it does not, um, it, it will never be close to what we would like for um, a lot of these children um, to, to be able to experience um, when coming um, to our country. Um, I think that we are far, far, far from um, being able to um, accept um, a lot of refugee um, minors in a dignified way. And I think that um, uh, that's uh, very difficult um, to think about. Um, we have had the opportunity um, through different, uh, when we mentioned the asylum clinic, at one point there was a convention center. Um, and so um, that is changing a lot of the time. And so our interaction um, with a lot of minors in particular just comes in different forms. Um, in terms of the pro progress, um, we do work closely with a lot of organizations in the community. Um, and I would say that if there's any progress being made, um, that is all um, because of them and the work that they are doing. Uh, we work closely with um, Jewish Family Services. I know that ACLU is always working for legal venues through which to advocate um, for both minors and adults. Um, I know that there's always a close eye on some of the detention centers here looking for ways um, to whether it's, you know, I, the ideally would be for those to not exist and for to not have children um, be detained. Um, but I think that there are always um, opportunities to potentially try to improve the conditions in some way um, or have a close watch on what's happening there um, and making sure that we improve, like, you know, just move the needle um, just a bit. Um, and so I think that that, um, you know, those are kind of the things that we, you know, we are very fortunate to be able to have communication with those organizations that are doing um, the big, big work. And then occasionally we have the opportunity to um, provide some medical care or some screening or even um, just be there for support um, for some of you know, the different um, populations that are coming through the border. Thank you, Anna. Uh, Aisha, would you like to add anything to that? No, I think it's just first and foremost, thank you so much to you and Cal for allowing us to to have this space and this venue to talk not just about our work, but what we see in our community, what we live through on a daily basis. And I think sometimes even we forget about the reality of what we see outside the hospital and clinic world and and i think it's incredibly important to to voice it and to and to kind of share those stories and and help people realize that it's not just you know a border thing it's not just a california thing it's an our entire country thing and and i think people having been in the northeast and and i'm sure that allison and anna can share this but people have such a different idea about what border life might look like because they feel so far away from it. But I, I think people also don't realize how incredibly parallel and, and how incredibly, you know, shared commonalities we have. And I think it's, it's 
very important work that you guys are doing. And, and I thank you so much. I'm sure Anna and Allison do too, for allowing us to kind of put a voice to that and put a voice to the stories that we witness on a daily basis. Yeah, thank you for your kind words. And also, I wanted to tell our audience that I know by talking to you that you also encourage Latino youth to follow your path and become physicians and become uh, um, family doctors so they can actually treat and go back to their communities. So we hope this program will inspire some of our young people that would like to pursue these careers after listening the amazing job that you do. Um, but unfortunately, you know, we are running out of time and um, I want to tell the um, audience that this is KZYX, Mendocino Community Radio Station. This afternoon, we were interviewing three physicians from the area of Chula Vistas. They are Alicia Van Pratt-Levin, uh, Alison Strada, and Ana Ortiz. Um, and this is part, uh, it's our third program uh, of a series for Hispanic Heritage Month. And we are really grateful that you came today to talk to you. Thank you so much. Social justice warriors. That's what, uh, that's what we'll take to the streets. Okay. Yes. Thank you so much. You are our thank heroes. You. And uh, bye bye. hope to thank talk you. to you again, maybe in the future. Thank you so much. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.